Uh, you guys can turn to page four in your bulletins. The preaching text is, is there in Luke chapter one. All right, Luke one, uh, starting in verse 26. I will read for you guys. Marsh, can you lower the volume slightly? Okay. In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David. And the virgin's name was Mary. And he came to her and said, Greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. But she was greatly troubled at the saying and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. And the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom there will be no end. And Mary said to the angel, How will this be, since I am a virgin? And the angel answered her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. And behold, your relative Elizabeth, in her old age, has also conceived the son, and this is the sixth month with her, who is called barren, for nothing will be impossible with God. And Mary said, Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. This is the word of God. So, uh, we are going through a series, right? We're looking at uh, Luke chapter 1, right? And last time, we looked at the story of the angel Gabriel coming to Zechariah and announcing the birth of John the Baptist. And today, we're looking at the announcement of the birth of Jesus, the Christmas story. And we need to remember that the Christmas story is the climax of the story in the Old Testament. That the people of God have been waiting, longing, praying for centuries for the Messiah to come, and at last, here in our story, God announces that it will come to pass. And we hear for the first time in redemptive history the name of the Messiah, Jesus. And who receives this annunciation? Uh, the word annunciation is a fancy way to basically say the announcement, and that's kind of the traditional name of this passage. Who receives this annunciation? But Mary. This humble woman from a nobody town called Nazareth. And uh, according to the custom of the day, since Mary was betrothed to be married, she's just a teenage young woman here. And she is the one who receives the uh, Annunciation. So what do we learn here? What do we see? And, and here's the outline. We see three points. We see the amazing nature of the angel's message. Number two, we see uh, Mary's thoughtful puzzlement. Thoughtful puzzlement. And then we see Mary's unconditional submission. Uh, unconditional submission. Um, okay, so point number one, the message, the angel's message. And you can see it there in verses 30 through uh, 33 and, and verse 35, right? And there's so much there. And, uh, you know, we could spend the whole sermon, you know, kind of unpacking the amazing things the angel Gabriel says. But I just want to draw our attention to one detail, okay? Just to one detail. Notice that uh, Gabriel calls God the Most High. He says this quite deliberately, right? He says, the Most High God will become a baby. 
that the infinite creator will become a helpless babe. And that's amazing, you know? I think that we're so used to the Christmas story that the details of the story don't stun us anymore. You know, they don't make us stagger. But this is astonishing, you know, that the long-awaited Messiah will be God himself, right? The second person of the Trinity, God the Son, and that he will become a baby. And I think it's worth pausing here for a moment just to reflect on that juxtaposition, you know, that the Most High God will become this vulnerable, weak little baby. And this is God, right? Infinite, eternal, all-knowing, all-powerful, the creator of all things, Almighty God, who has created the universe. Do you guys know how big the universe is? I can say this with absolute confidence. You have no idea. It is beyond human comprehension. And I love to do this, so please indulge me, okay? Um, Let's talk about the size of the universe, this thing that God created. Let's talk about the solar system, right? How big is the solar system? Um, The solar system is enormous. And every time we see, you know, those scale models, you know, in those posters and so forth, uh, of the solar system, it is incredibly deceptive, right? Because that in no way communicates how big the solar system is. So, So... Indulge me for a moment when I draw a picture for you of the proper scale of the solar system, okay? Let's imagine that the planet Earth is the size of a peppercorn, right? You guys know what peppercorns are? They're little tiny things, right? And mind you, right, that the Earth is 8,000 miles in diameter, okay? So the Earth is a little peppercorn, and if the Earth is a peppercorn, how big in our model would the sun be? Well, the sun would be a ball 8 inches wide, so basically the size of a bowling ball, right? So you have a bowling ball, here you have a peppercorn. And what is the distance between the Earth and the Sun? According to the model, 26 paces, right? So 26 medium-sized steps, which is basically the length of this auditorium. So we're drawing our model here. On one end of the auditorium, we put the Sun, the bowling ball. At the other end of the model, we put planet Earth. And there you have the distance between Earth and Sun. But what about the solar system? The furthest planet from the Sun is Pluto. And according to this model, I saw someone shake their head. Yes, it's been revised, but let's just say it's Pluto, okay? (laughs) The furthest planet is Pluto, or a very large asteroid. How how far away is Pluto, according to this model? Over 1,000 paces, okay? This is far beyond our little auditorium. We're going to have to go outside the Castro Valley Boulevard, okay? So we're going to place our bowling ball of the sun. We're going to put our little peppercorn Earth and we're going to walk over half a mile's distance and put down a little tiny speck that we're going to call Pluto. And as you stand there looking at little Pluto on the floor and you're looking for the sun, it's now invisible because it's, it's, you can't see it with the, with the naked eye. Maybe you whip out the monoculars and you can see the planet, the, the sun, and you look at this enormous distance and you begin to appreciate the terrifying wonder that is space. And that's just the, whole, that's just the solar system. And now we're going to go into crazy town, okay? Let's, what's the distance to the next nearest star? 6,000 solar system lengths. Can you imagine the vast space between our star and the next star? And what about our galaxy? Our galaxy has over 200 billion stars. Our galaxy is unspeakably huge. And, you know, forgive me for nerding out on you a little bit, but um, 
every time you see like sci-fi movies or shows like Star Trek or Star Wars, right? And they have like intergalactic speed, you know, they can they can like travel, you know, warp speed to other other stars and other planets. You never and I and I and I commend the the, the, the credibility and integrity of these sci-fi shows for saying this. You never never leave the galaxy. <laughs> Right? Sometimes, like, you know, in a Star Wars episode, a spaceship will be flown far off into the reaches of the galaxy, and it takes them, like, 300 years to get back home, right? They never leave the galaxy, because the galaxy is unspeakably huge. What's the distance to the next nearest galaxy? 30 galaxy lengths. Can you imagine just the enormous distance? And according to scientists, right, the size of the visible universe, right, just what we can see with our satellites and whatnot, our, you know, you know telescopes, is a quarter trillion galaxies. Hundreds and hundreds of billions. Billion is a thousand million, by the way. Hundreds and hundreds of billions of galaxies in our universe. And God, the Bible says, created all of this. Every star, every planet, every asteroid, even at the very atomic level, that God is in control of everything, that there is no subatomic particle particle outside the control of God. (laughs) That God comprehends it all, all at once. And this God, Luke tells us, the angel Gabriel tells us, this God, this most high God, became a weak little baby. Now, I know something about babies. You know, I didn't know something about babies four months ago, but I know something about babies, you know? And uh, I used to think, I don't know what possessed me to think this, but I used to think that the reason why babies are so weak and helpless and vulnerable is because they're basically miniaturized version of adults, you know? That they can't kind of reach to the top counter, you know? But they're basically little, little people. Man, I am so wrong, you know? You know what makes a baby weak and helpless? Is that, you know, excuse my language here, but they're developmentally retarded, you know? The only thing they know how to control when they're born is their mouth, Okay? <laughs> They don't know how to control their arms. They don't know how to control their legs. And so Judah's like flailing about erratically. He has no control. And just now, he's four months old. Just now, he's beginning to, beginning to be able to grasp things, right? So you put a little thing in front of him, and then he like concentrates like for 20 seconds, you know? And he can maybe grasp it with like his wrists. And half the time, he's unsuccessful. And that's a baby, you know? And... The Christmas story is that our God, the Most High God, the Infinite Creator, became a weak and vulnerable baby. Why? As I was uh, struggling and wrestling with uh, this passage throughout this week, uh, this one one day I was taking a walk with Christina. And I was, you know, talking to him, why did God have to become a little baby? I mean, if it is for the sake of salvation, why didn't God just, you know, kind of beam down as a 30-year-old man, you know, to die on the cross? Why did he have to become a baby? And Christina said to me, you know, have you thought of Hebrews 4.15? And that was the answer. Some of you are saying, what's Hebrews 4.15? Let me read it for you, okay? This is, I think this is it. Okay, listen carefully. The writer of Hebrews, uh, speaking of Jesus Christ, okay, said this. Listen, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. That's the answer. You see, the writer of Hebrews tells us that Jesus is our priest. What is a priest? Well, a prophet represents God before man. And a priest represents man before God. And in order for a priest to represent us, he needs to 
know us. He needs to know our weaknesses. He needs to know our frailties. And that's why in the passage, it says Jesus was tempted in every respect and yet without sin, which means that Jesus experienced the full range of human life. The full range. Even the absolute vulnerability of infancy. And you know, this week as I've been thinking about this passage, you know, thinking about the Son of God becoming a little baby. You know, uh, one of my routines every morning is I wake up uh, earlier than I want to, uh, and my job is to take care of baby Judah and kind of relieve Christina, right? So Christina can collapse and take a nap. So, I, you know, I hold baby Judah, and I'm walking him around. Uh, sometimes I take walks or something. And, you know, this week as I was thinking about the story of Christmas, I was holding my little boy, and it just absolutely amazed me, you know, that God became a little baby. And, you know, maybe some of you are thinking, well, yes, God became a baby, but he retained all his divine powers, you know, so that it wasn't so bad. (laughs) But you know what's amazing? There's a story in John chapter 2 where Jesus turns water into wine, the story of the wedding, wedding in Cana. And John tells us that that was the first miracle, Jesus' first miracle. And what that's telling us is that Jesus lived until around the age of 30, until that story, Jesus lived fully as a human being without at all drawing upon the powers and prerogatives of his divine being. And what that means is that God, as a baby, you know, he suffered or endured the indignities and the weaknesses and the vulnerabilities of babies. He pooped in his diaper or whatever was the equivalent in the ancient world. You know, he pooped in his diaper. He struggled to crawl. He struggled to learn his first words. You know, he began to, you know, stand up and then stumble and fall and cry. And God endured all of that. Why? So that he could identify with us. So that he could know our weaknesses and our pains, and our troubles, so that he could be our priest, so that he could represent us and be our substitute. So that even from infancy, Jesus could live the life we should have lived and die the death we should have died. And therefore, the Christmas story is this, that the infinite became a little baby. And that should fill us with wonder and awe. That should make us fall on our knees and cry out in worship before our God. Are you filled with wonder and awe at this story? All right, so that's the first point. The second point, then, is Mary's thoughtful puzzlement. Now, if you look in verse 29, Mary responds to this amazing message. Uh, The text says, But Mary was greatly troubled at the saying and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. Now, I think that's not the clearest of translations because it sort of, the text sort of suggests that Mary was trying to figure out the kind of greeting as if there were a variety of greetings and she was sort of trying to pin down which one it was. Uh, but that's not the meaning. And I think part of the problem, right, is that um, if we look at the word try to discern, it's the Greek word logizomai. And it's a very significant word, right, because logizomai means to logically work out with your mind, right? It, it's like it's to reason... Right? This is what it says in the dictionary. It's to reason as in what you do when you're solving a complex mathematical problem. It's to give careful thought. This is what Mary is doing. It's a rigorous intellectual activity. Logizomai. 
And so what was Mary so focused on trying to understand? She was trying to understand the reason for the angels coming. She was trying to understand the meaning behind the message. Mary was furiously engaging her mind, trying to understand, trying to understand just exactly what the angel was trying to say to her. And in this, the Bible gives us a model of faith. You see, Mary doesn't understand, you know. In fact, she's completely befuddled. But instead of blindly accepting, instead of saying, okay, whatever, it doesn't make any sense to me, but I guess that's how it is. You know, instead of blindly accepting, or instead of rejecting, instead of saying, this is impossible, this makes no sense at all, I'm not going to give this a second thought. She engages her mind, and she's trying to unravel the mystery, and here we have a picture of how Christians should respond to the gospel. You see, Mary uh, is trying to wrap her mind, you know. She's our model here. She's trying to wrap her mind, trying to figure out this puzzle. And in verse 34, what does she say? She says, how will this be since I am a virgin? You know, she says, I've never known a man sexually. And so how is this pregnancy going to come about? And some of you remembering the last message, right, where uh, the angel Gabriel came to Zechariah. Some of you are saying, that sounds a lot like what Gabriel says. But in that story, what happens? The angel Gabriel strikes Zechariah mute. But with Mary, he blesses her and then leaves. So what gives? You know, what, is there some sort of double standard here? And you have to understand that what Luke is doing here, the Luke who wrote the story, is he's purposely drawing these two stories in parallel. He's purposely uh, making us draw a contrast, comparing Zechariah and Mary. And what is the point? What is the contrast? You see, Zechariah asked his questions as a way to disbelieve. But Mary asked her questions as a way to believe. You know, she's not saying, this is impossible, like Zechariah, I refuse to believe. She's saying, how is this possible? (laughs) Help me to believe. And so she's going deeper. She's not using her questions to run away from God. She's using her questions as the pathway to God. And I think that is such an encouragement for us, you know. Because some of us right now have questions. And some of us are wondering, is this whole Jesus thing for real? And this story, the story of Mary, tells us that we shouldn't be afraid of our questions. You know, I think there's this perception out there that, you know, difficult questions are bad because they're obstacles to faith. They take you away from the faith. But this story shows us that difficult questions is the entryway of faith, you know? And just to share my own personal story, when I was in junior high and high school, I remember having all these questions, you know? And uh, I remember asking my Sunday school teacher and asking... uh, uh, my Bible study teachers, and I had all these questions about science and, and Christianity, about evolution. Uh, I had all these questions about, uh, I remember the origin of evil, did God create evil, about the resurrection. I remember asking my Bible study teacher all these questions, and I remember their answer was, stop asking these questions. <laughs> these questions are just going to frustrate you because the answers aren't out there. And it's just going to make you doubt your faith. And basically what my Sunday school teachers were telling me is, chuck your brain out the door. Christianity is not a thinking religion. But I love this story, you know. I love the example of Mary. Logizomai, because Mary shows us that Christianity is a thoughtful faith. And you have, you have to engage your mind. You have to think it through. 
You have to try to unravel it. You can't just blindly accept on a shallow basis, but you have to do it in an open and humble way. Just to share another story, the story of C.S. Lewis. Uh, many of you guys know C.S. Lewis, right? He's the author of so many Christian books. He wrote the Chronicles of Narnia. He wrote Mere Christianity. But many of you may not know that C.S. Lewis became a Christian relatively late in his life. And uh, when he was a teenager, he became this passionate atheist, you know? And uh, he believed on these intellectual, rational grounds that God could not exist, that the, Bible of, the God of the Bible is false. But then he writes in his uh, spiritual autobiography, Surprised by Joy, he says, as an atheist, I think it's kind of funny, he says, as an atheist, you can never be too careful what you read. Because God lays all these traps, you know? And if you're curious and you start picking up books, God is going to get you. And he says that he began to be confronted with the reality of God. And he would read books like by G.K. Chesterton and George MacDonald. And then it finally came, it finally culminated when he was a professor at Oxford. You know, he was a professor of English literature at this renowned university. And he was surrounded by these Christian friends, you know. And uh, one of his friends was J.R.R. Tolkien, who eventually wrote The Lord of the Rings. And so he would have these uh, long, rambling conversations. He would take, like, walks in the midnight. And he says that he would walk, like, sometimes up to 3 a.m. in the morning. And he would talk about things like the meaning of beauty, the meaning of truth. You know, who is Jesus, the, the historical claims of Christianity, until one day the penny dropped. And it became a reality to him that he realized he believes. And I think that the story of C.S. Lewis is, you know, so encouraging to us because, listen, the reason why he's so effective in his writings, and he is, you know, he's influenced so many people, I think it's because he's approaching his faith. He came to it from the perspective of a skeptic, from an atheist, you know? Recently, um, John Piper wrote a book called Think. Um, and it's a great little book, and let me just give you the quick synopsis. Basically, John Piper says that today what we see among Christians is really a lot of soft, muddle-headed thinking. You know, that Christians are so content to relate to God, to understand their faith, kind of just through their emotions, just through sensations. And he says, that ought not to be. He says, and I, and, and I think this is absolutely true, he says, you cannot love God unless you love God with your mind. Not merely with your mind, but you have, to, you have to love him with your mind. You have to wrestle with the truth. You know, I'm not saying, and I don't think John Piper is saying that we all have to become PhDs, you know, that we all have to read 25 books a year. But what I am saying is we can't be satisfied with a shallow understanding of our faith. We have to ask the difficult questions. We have to wrestle with what our culture says. And we have to try to puzzle out the meaning of the Christian life. What does the gospel mean? How does it translate into Christian living? You know, how can it be that Jesus is who he says he is? We have to engage our minds. And I think this is a beautiful story because here is Mary, a humble little girl in a, in a town called Nowhere. She's a teenage girl and she is furiously thinking. She's puzzling it out. She's working it out in her mind. She's trying to understand. And that is an example of faith, of biblical faith. That's how we come to believe. Not just blindly, not just saying, okay. <laughs> All right. Point number three. Mary's unconditional submission. Mary responds uh, to this amazing message in verse 38. She says, Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. You know, so many of us are familiar with the King James Version, which says, Behold, I am the handmaiden of the Lord. 
And uh, it sounds so sweet and genteel, right? Handmaiden. Uh, but do you know what the uh, underlying Greek word there is, right? Mary uses the word doulos. And doulos means slave. Mary is saying, I am the Lord's slave. And, you know, we want to say to Mary, Mary, why are you getting all extreme on us? You know, why are you whipping out the slave language? But Mary knew exactly what God was asking of her. Mary knew exactly what the angel was saying. Because what was the angel saying? The angel was saying, Mary, God wants you to have a son whom everyone in your community, all of your friends and relatives, are going to basically look at that child as an illegitimate child. That you're going to have this child out of wedlock. Now, for us in the modern world, you know, sex outside of marriage is no big thing. And if a, if a young woman becomes pregnant without a husband, no one bats an eye. But this is the ancient world. And in that culture, women were basically judged on two things. The first thing is how many children you can produce, right? We talked about that a few weeks back. And the second thing is maintaining a reputation of sexual purity before marriage. And as a young woman, the most valuable thing you had as a woman was that reputation. You know, and the two are linked. Because if you lose that reputation, if people know that you're no longer a virgin, <coughs> no respectable man would ever take you in marriage. And, you know, we might say, how primitive. <laughs> we might say, you know, to judge women on those standards, how oppressive, and it was. But let me ask you this question, okay? How many women do you think in the ancient world struggled with eating disorders? We don't have actual statistics, but uh, I can pretty much guarantee you almost no one. Because in that culture, that's not the value system. In our culture, we value women on the basis of their appearance, almost exclusively. And so you see that if you center anything in your life other than God, it creates these destructive cultural norms. And the Bible tells us that every culture, every culture needs to be redeemed. Every culture is fallen and broken and needs to be renewed by the gospel. But okay, going back to the story. So the angel basically is asking Mary to give up her reputation, right? The angel is asking Mary um, to accept public shame and humiliation, to bear this child that everyone is going to see as the result of infidelity and promiscuity. But on top of that, at this point in the story, Mary doesn't know that God is going to send an angel to Joseph. And so what is Joseph going to, how is he going to react? Joseph's going to say, hmm, Mary's pregnant. I know it wasn't me. <laughs> you know, what is he going to think? How is he going to act? He's going to divorce her. And in fact, that's exactly what was happening until God sent an angel to Joseph. He was going to divorce her. And if Joseph had divorced Mary, that would have meant that Mary was going to be a single mother with zero chance of ever marrying someone else in a culture in which men made all the money. A single unwed mother, Mary was going to endure grinding poverty. Just incredible, a life of incredible hardship. And so God was essentially asking Mary to lose everything her reputation, her future, her financial security, everything. And Mary responds 
by saying, yes, I am the Lord's doulos. The angel says, trust in God no matter where he leads you, no matter how dark the night, no matter how desolate the valley. And Mary says, I am the Lord's slave. And I think we can see why she uses that word quite deliberately because a slave has no claim to their own life. A slave is completely at the command of her master. And Mary is saying, my life is not my own. Whatever the Lord commands. And I think her story is such a beautiful example of faith. But it's not just Mary, you know, we see her from a distance. She is a challenge for us. And she is a challenge to us. Will we follow God no matter the cost? Will we follow him no matter where he leads us? Will we accept whatever the loss? Will we say with, Jesus, with Mary, I am the Lord's due loss? I was uh, having coffee with uh, someone in the church recently. And uh, we were talking about what it's like to work in the corporate world. And, uh, you know, he was explaining to me that, you know, in his corporation, in his company, you know, there's some shady business that goes on. That in the drive for profitability, in the drive to meet the sales, uh, there's some dishonesty and, uh, you know, some shady things going on. And I asked him, what if as a Christian, someone in, in a position of power says, no, I am a Christian. This is not right. This is not pleasing to God. We ought to do what is good and right. What would happen? And he kind of looked at me and he said, well, you know, maybe you would be fired. Maybe you would be passed over for a promotion. But it would be basically career suicide. You see, it's costly to follow Christ in this world. Right now, we're uh, going through financial pledges, right, for IGC. Uh, we're trying to draw up the budget, right? And we're asking you to partner with us and to support the church and to write down uh, a sum of money that you are willing to tithe in support of the ministry of the gospel here. And as you sit down to write down that number, it becomes a test, does it not? Because you can think of so many different things that you can do with that money, right? You can squirrel it away and add security and safety into your life. Or you could spend and buy so many nice things. But Jesus, but, but, but uh, when you're writing that number, it's a test. Will you follow Jesus? Will you obey him? Will you follow him no matter where he leads, no matter what it will cost you? You know, to follow Jesus in this world is so costly in our relationships. Sometimes if you have a boyfriend and girlfriend and you say no to premarital sex, what does that mean? It means the end of the relationship. It's costly for your family, for your safety and security. If you answer the call of God to be a missionary and go to a country where it's dangerous to be a Christian, your family's life will be put in danger. Your own life will be put in danger. You know, your own time, your own convenience, God... Following God is costly. But will you say with Mary, I am the Lord's doulos? And some of you are saying, well, that's asking an awful lot. How can I trust God? How can I follow him? You know, some of you don't trust God, and I think that's why you live the way you do. You know, why should I give up control over my life? Why should I be vulnerable to God? And here's the answer, because God in Christ became vulnerable to you. Starting, beginning with the Christmas story, right? By becoming a little baby and ending in the garden. Do you guys remember the story of the Garden of Gethsemane? 
Jesus is kneeling in prayer, and he's contemplating the cross, and he's wrestling with the reality, the awful reality of what is being asked of him. And do you remember what he prays? He says, Father, if it is possible, if it is possible, let this cup pass. Do not send me to the cross. But in the very same breath, Jesus says, but not my will, not my desires, not my plan, not my autonomy, but yours be done. This is the gospel. The gospel is that we can give ourselves unconditionally to him because he gave himself unconditionally to us in Christ, in our salvation. And therefore, and therefore, is it not right and proper that we respond to that gospel, to that great love of the Father by submitting, by obeying? Let's pray. Lord, we see that in the Christmas story, you took the first step on a journey that would lead to the cross. And you did it because you are our Messiah, you are our Savior, you are our High Priest. And now you ask us to trust you, to obey you, no matter what the cost, no matter where you might lead us, even into the darkest of valleys. But, oh Lord, this is so hard for us to do. And we wrestle with it. But grant that we would respond in faith to the gospel and return the life you give to us. And to take the example of Mary to heart. Lord, we pray that the gospel would be a reality in our lives and not just a kind of slogan far away and distant. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.